0: Well, we are starting this new series, and as I read one of the commentaries to get started, Sam Storms said this, and I liked it, so I thought I'd just read it out. Although we should resist the temptation to rank the various books of the Bible, as each is equally inspired and profitable for Christian living, it is easy to understand why 1 Peter is a favourite of so many. From its focus on future blessings at Christ's return, to its encouragement, for those who are presently suffering for their faith, 1 Peter speaks to the needs, anxieties, hopes, and all too common fears of Christian men and women everywhere. Isn't that good? It speaks to the needs, anxieties, hopes, and all too common fears of Christian men like me and women everywhere. Let me read to you the first two verses of the Apostle Peter's letter. be multiplied to you. Let me pray. Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to begin setting the theme for the whole book before we dive into explaining the particulars of those verses. So, Uh, I want to begin by letting you know about one of my favourite bands, a band called Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Uh, You may know them if you're a Triple J listener. In 2009, uh, they released a song which put them into global fame, a powerful and fun folky tune called Home, a song that quickly became an anthem And incidentally, I I remember seeing them play that song live out at Dungog and uh, in a festival, music festival, Maddie and I were jumping around. She was pregnant with Evie. It was a dust bowl. It was probably terrible for Evie. Might explain some of Evie. Uh, But nonetheless, it was one of the best musical experiences of my life. Uh, It has a catchy tune and it repeats a sentimental refrain. Home is wherever I am with you. Home is wherever I am with you. In fact, we actually have this on a little decoration, a wooden decoration that Maddie gave me for one of our anniversaries where the present is meant to be wood. Uh, So we have it up on our home. The song speaks to the experience that Alex, the lead singer, and Jade felt as they fell in love together and how that concept is akin, or that experience was akin to the concept of Home. It begins in a fun way, if you listen to the song later, with Alex and Jade singing lines to one another. I won't sing it, but I'll read it. (laughs) Alabama, Arkansas, I do love my ma and pa, not the way that I do love you. Well, holy moly, me oh my, you're the apple of my eye. Girl, I never loved one like you. Man, oh man, you're my best friend. I scream it to the nothingness. There ain't nothing I need. Well, hot and heavy, pumpkin pie, chocolate candy, Jesus Christ. There ain't nothing please me more than you. Oh, home. Let me come home. Home is wherever I'm with you. Oh, home. Let me come home. Home is wherever I'm with you. Home. Home. It is an emotive word, isn't it? Where's your home? Where's the place where you feel most at home? In general, that concept of home represents the place where we feel most safe, settled, and secure. Though sadly, our house is not always our home, and it's not always the case that we feel that safety and security. Jade and Alexander, the authors of that song, broke up shortly afterwards via email. In general, home is the place where you can be you in all your glory, singing, dancing, laughing, craziness. Uh, You can be your normal self without the fear of others. And you can be you in all your shame, the place where we're often our worst, isn't it? Yelling, fighting, frustration, Laziness and sin, at least that's the case in my home. It's a powerful concept, home. It's actually one that goes to the heart and core of our desires as humans. That's why so many churches have copied the famous sign that's plastered all over Hillsong churches globally, welcome home. For many of you, Australia is where you may live, in a house or apartment, but it may not really feel like home yet. You may feel a bit out of place. The shops you love, the food you crave, the style you're comfortable with, the authority structures, the geography, the the scents and smells, the way people walk and talk even. It's good, but may not yet feel home. In 2017, my family and I moved to America to study at the Southern Grace Pastors College. And we loved living in America, but we didn't ever feel like it became home to us. We enjoyed it. We stayed there, but we always craved the beaches, the bush, even the birds of Australia, crazy as they may be. We craved even the style of Sydney's architecture, the haphazard streets and the craziness of it all. But most of all, we actually craved the people. It was the people we missed and the coffee. Uh, Let's be real, America and coffee, not so good. But as good as home is, even in the heights of our experience of it, it doesn't ever fully provide all that we long for, does it? The people we share home with, well, they can leave. The place we live in itself can deteriorate. Times change. Hurts occur. And even the best of our homes, we experience a disconnect, like trying to hold water in our hands, and the joy is always slipping through. This experience leaves us with a longing a longing for a greater home. And so what are we meant to do with this longing? Well, I want to quote at length from C.S. Lewis, a writer from about a century ago. He famously expressed so well this reality in chapter 10 of Mere Christianity called hope. And I'll read some select portions. And I want to read it at length because I think it just does such a good job of understanding this great theme of the book of 1 Peter. So what do we do when we don't feel like we're at home? Well, C.S. Lewis says, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. Now, he says, there are two wrong ways of dealing with this fact and one right one. The first wrong way the fool's way he puts the blame on the things themselves he goes on all his life thinking that if only he tried another woman or went for a more expensive holiday or whatever it is this time he would really catch the mysterious something we are all after well, the second wrong way the way of the disillusioned sensible man He soon decides that the whole thing was moonshine. Of course, he says, one feels like that when one's young. But by the time you get to my age, you've given up chasing the rainbow's end. And so he settles down and learns not to expect too much and represses the part of himself which used, as he would say, to cry for the moon. Broadly speaking, he's actually reflecting on a Western and Eastern view The Western view is always searching, always going out, always going to find that something extra. Whereas the Eastern, the more Buddhist view, is is actually about finding, repressing those desires and realising that the desire itself is what causes suffering. But Lewis continues, supposing infinite happiness really is there waiting for us, supposing one really can reach the rainbow's end, in that case it would be a pity to find out too late, a moment after death, that by our supposed common sense, we had stifled in ourselves the faculty of enjoying it. So he proposes three, the Christian way. The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He goes on. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for those earthly blessings, or on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they're only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. And here's the crucial line. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. It paints this picture of We long for home, yet we never can grasp it here. What are we meant to do? Repress that desire or search for it everywhere and anywhere. Instead, we're meant to recognize that that desire exists to press us somewhere else, to press us to long for somewhere else, that true country And that desire for our true country, our true home, ought never to be snowed under or turned aside. And the way Peter wants to help us do that is to give us a new identity to shape us for this journey, to help us in between the now and the not yet. And that identity is that of exiles. Peter wants us to have a new identity so that we will know how to live for Jesus in a hostile world that is not our home. This whole letter is designed to help us live with this uncomfortable reality that we long for home. We wish we were home, but we're not there yet. And so how are we meant to navigate? How are we meant to figure out how we live with all these competing desires and the disappointments, the tragedy, the ups and the downs? Well, Peter gives us a gift. The gift is an identity, a way of thinking of ourselves, and that is of or as exiles. An exile is someone who is not in their home country. They're passing through or they're estranged from their home country. They're, they're not at home where they are, but they still have to live. And that's the identity that Peter wants to give us. Peter wants us to know that we're on a journey, on a pilgrimage. We're on our way home, but we're not there yet. And in the meantime, we're going to face the hard facts and realities of exiles. Exiles. Living as aliens and strangers, living in a world that sees us as outsiders, as dangerous, and as despicable. So I want to begin by asking Are you longing for your true home? Do you see yourself as an exile that's not home yet? Or have you given up on the hope of heaven? Or have you started to make heaven here on earth? I want us to be people who are longing for our true home. Longing for that eternal intimacy, that eternal joy, that eternal feasting, the dance, the security, the peace that we will have when we're finally there. And so I invite you to join with me as fellow exiles as we journey with Peter, as he shows us how to live in a hostile world as we seek our true home. With my remaining time after I've established that identity for us, I want to give us three short points to get us oriented into the letter. Three things we need to know to help us navigate through the book of Peter. Firstly, point one, the author. Point two, the audience, and point three, the identity. So let's jump into point number one there, the author. This letter begins simply with the identification of who's writing it. Read verse one with me Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Much ink is spilled over who's the true author of this letter, but from the earliest point of church history, The self-identification of Peter hasn't been challenged by the early church fathers in the church time. They thought it was the Apostle Peter. I believe this letter was written by the Apostle Peter. And he says, Peter, an Apostle of Jesus Christ. It leaves little doubt as to who is the author. Peter is a man, likely in his day, who needed no nor wanted to give himself much of an introduction. Peter was so famous, so well known. We've just spent two years walking through Matthew's Gospel. We know Peter pretty well, but I thought it'd be nice to just spend a moment understanding who Peter is again so that we can get a feel for who's writing to us through the Holy Spirit. The author R.C. Sproul says this about Peter. I thought it was a great description. Peter is known as a thundering paradox of a man. <laughs> if you know Peter, that's true. A thundering paradox paradox of a man Uh, he begins we find out as a fisherman a low station though likely potentially pretty wealthy soon called by Christ to come out of fishing for for fish and to become a fisher of men he is uneducated he's not of high status yet he becomes one of the first disciples of Christ and through the gospels we see him as a bold blunderer that's how I would describe Peter a bold blunderer and Matthew 16 we saw a great picture of this the disciples have been with Jesus for some time now it's near the end of his ministry and Jesus gathers the disciples and says who do the crowds say that I am and they say oh some say Elijah some say John the Baptist and then Jesus says but who do you say I am and Peter in his boldness inspired by the Holy Spirit says you are the Christ the Son of God And Jesus is like, you got it right, Peter, you're the rock on which I build the church, I give you the keys of the kingdom, well done. Then Jesus goes on to explain what it means to be the Christ, to be the saviour. And he says that I'm going to die, I'm going to be betrayed, handed over, and one day I'll rise again. And Peter's idea of what the Christ would be didn't really fit with that. And so he turned to Jesus and rebuked him. Uh, That's the blundering part of Peter saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Yeah, Uh, that's the thundering paradox. Jesus, after calling him the rock, turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, So that's kind of Peter in a picture. Bold blunderer. Uh, He, full of faith, Speaks before he thinks, most likely. Uh, we saw that when he walked on water, he jumps off the boat, walking on water, sees the wind and the waves and then starts to sink. On the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter said, I will never betray you, never. Even if I have to die, never going to happen. Within a couple of hours, he betrays him three times. That's Peter. Peter. And to be honest, I do resonate and love Peter. I think I'm a bit of a bold blunderer, though nowhere near as bold as Peter, just more blundering. Uh, But I do kind of resonate with the thundering paradox of who he is. However, after Peter receives the Holy Spirit... Uh, He's uniquely used by Jesus to build the church of Jesus Christ. He goes forward and full of the Holy Spirit begins to proclaim the gospel and thousands and thousands of people become Christians. The Jewish leaders who killed Christ didn't like Peter, so they imprisoned him. The angels let him out and then the next day, what does Peter do? He gets back out there and starts preaching the gospel again. They arrest him. They're very frustrated at him. They They command him to stop telling people about Jesus and he replies... We must obey God rather than men. That's the type of person Peter is. And we're going to see that kind of boldness characterized throughout the letter in the face of hostility. Peter then was used by Jesus to first preach the gospel to non-Jewish people. Uh, To Cornelius, the Roman centurion, even Peter, again, in his blundering, Jesus said, get up and go and do it. He's like, no, I don't think I should. And eventually, three times, Jesus tells, go and preach to the Gentiles. Eventually, he goes and does it. Gentiles become Christians, and the gospel goes forward to the end of the earth. But then Peter has another blundering time. Later on, he caves into pressure, begins to only associate with Jewish people, not with the Gentiles anymore, And so Paul the Apostle had to rebuke Peter publicly um, in order to separate that problem. And so we see this bold, blundering Peter and it's reflected in the authenticity and beauty of this letter. Church tradition teaches that Peter ended up in Rome at the end of his life where he was um, put to death upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way as our Lord. And in fact, in chapter 5 verse 13 of 1 Peter Peter identifies that most likely he is in Rome as he writes this letter. He says, She who is at Babylon, which is a synonym for Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So that's our author. That's who we're going to be tracking with. He walked with Jesus from beginning to end, instrumental force in the beginning of the church, uniquely used by Christ, a bold, blunderer, a thundering paradox of a man. But he's also one, we must remember this, who knew firsthand Jesus Christ, saw Jesus in all his glory, heard Jesus preaching, saw Jesus' miracles, witnessed his death and resurrection. And so when Peter talks about being an exile and longing for future home, It wasn't just a concept for him. He knew what it was like to be face to face with heaven itself. And so Peter embodies this longing of wanting to be back with the Lord all throughout this letter, but also knows what it's like to be absent from him and to live in the hostility. And so he is a, a great guide. But he's not just a guide as a human letter. This letter, I believe, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so these are words from God to us to instruct us in how to live. Indeed, it's a letter, how to live for Christ in a hostile world. So that's our author. Let's move to point number two, our audience or the audience. Look at with me, verse 1b. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Uh, This is most likely about 62 to 63 AD, if you put all the New Testament history together. Uh, Paul was likely in Rome up until 62, and it'd be strange for Peter not to mention Paul in his letter. But then Peter's probably dead by 64 AD, so most likely it's 62 to 63 AD. Just before Nero begins his great persecution of the church, famously where he used Christians to light up the roads of Rome by setting human beings on fire. That hadn't yet happened, but maybe the birth pains of some of the persecution had begun. He's writing to Christians, mostly Gentile Christians, spread across what was really the backwaters of the empire. Those places, those names there, reflect northern part of what was Asia Minor, what is now considered modern-day Turkey. So when you think, where are, th- where are these places, Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia? Turkey, okay, in your world map. That's where, that's where we're at. And though that, that region is sort of a loop that encompasses about 300,000 square miles, apparently. I didn't bother converting that into kilometres, but that's a, that's a big area. Uh, so this is a very broad letter, a very general letter that touches on a lot of different life stages, and so it's going to be really helpful for us. The people of these churches, the the dispersion, uh, they are most likely Gentiles, though Peter expects them to know the Old Testament Scriptures. So if you're a Christian and you don't yet read the Old Testament, I encourage you, jump back in and find out the prequel (laughs) and understand the backstory. He expects them to understand it. Uh, But most likely, um, it's speaking to Gentile Christians and explaining how becoming a Christian means changing everything about their life. They were pagans, uh, Roman citizens, worshipping the pantheon of gods. And now they're worshipping the one God, Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It encompasses all their living, breathing, thinking, doing, everything about them, their marriage, their family, their children, their parenting. Everything changes as a disciple of Christ. And their situation was that they were living in a hostile world, hence the tagline. They were under Roman rule in a pagan, in a moral culture that really did not get why they wouldn't join in with all that they were doing. Very much like our day and time. There wasn't outright persecution, but certainly lots of social pressure, angst, questions, potential legal battles, potential loss of jobs, potential physical abuse, depending on the circumstance. Commentator Tom Schreiner says this, As believers, most of them lived on the underside of society, under the authority of Rome, under unbelieving and cruel masters, or under unbelieving husbands. They suffered both in everyday life and from imperial authority. As we read through the letter, and as your life groups potentially did read through it like ours did, you'll notice that suffering and bearing up and enduring under suffering is a dominant theme that goes throughout the letter. The hostility comes home painfully. I want to read to you one such portion in chapter 3, 13 to 17. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be Blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. So they lived in hostility from people around them and also hostility from Satan. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So this hostility is, is a major theme from people, from the prince of evil. And hence, they needed this letter for instruction. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have their beautiful leather-bound you know, calfskin Bible with gold leaf you know, in there, beautifully put together with cross nodes. They had very few pieces of literature to help them. So they needed this letter from Peter to know how to live in a hostile world and it's very similar to us. Not our lack of Bible. We have the knowledge but we share a similar world. If you haven't noticed, we are walking toward minority status in our culture. Increasingly, we're being seen as the bad guys. Just refuse to wear a rainbow jersey and you'll find out what that's like. Why? Why? Well, there's lots of reasons Christians have committed many sins publicly and the church has not always had a perfect record, for sure. And there's lots of reasons why we might experience hostility and you might, you, know, you or I might be foolish in the way we're not wise, in the way we're outsiders. But deep down, the reason that there's a hostility and always will be hostility is because deep down, our world hates Jesus Christ. They might not say it. They might not think it. But deep down, everyone in the world who's not in Christ actually hates Jesus Christ. It's what the Bible tells us. Because Jesus Christ demands that we recognize our evil ways. Jesus demands that we repent of our sin and follow Him. And we don't like that. We don't like being told what to do, to stop doing what we want to do. We want to live guilt-free. We don't like the feeling of someone heaping shame on us, as it's said. And so there'll always be hostility wherever we go unless people bow the knee to Christ. No matter how warm, how nice, how cuddly, how progressive, how just people and inclusive they may seem, deep down there is an animosity between the church and the world. And now that the power tables have turned some, it's becoming more public, more acceptable, and we see it more readily. And if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, we want to say, we don't need to have that animosity here. We welcome you, we love you, and we want you to find Jesus for yourself and experience the hope that is in Him. But I'm talking about the reality that in the world, and there is this hostility. And so how kind of God to give us this letter, this map to guide us through our exile, to guide us through our journey between here and home. So we've seen the author, Peter, the bold blunderer. We've seen the identity, Christians living in a hostile other people, sorry, the audience. Now I want to finish where I began, looking at the identity. The identity that you and I need, that they needed to know how to navigate these realities. Point number three, the identity. Three times he makes a reference to an identity that he wants us to employ in order to help us to know how to live in this hostile world. Exiles. Look at verse 1 and a few other places. To those who are elect exiles. Verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Exiles. That's who you are. It's who we are. It's how we ought to see ourselves. But you notice in verse 1, it's not just exiles, is it? Elect exiles. We're not just exiles God hasn't just kind of left us and we're waiting and we're just left on our own. No, we are loved exiles. We are elect exiles. And so Peter goes on and can't help himself, but really gives an intro to many of the themes that come out throughout the rest of the letter in, verse, in the rest of the verses that we haven't looked at yet. He gives a theologically informed, rich expression of what it means to be an exile. What does that mean? Well, let's unpack those terms that he says. To the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. We're exiles who are chosen, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That doesn't mean that God had a crystal ball when he began the world and foresaw every possible opportunity. Of course, he knows everything. But what it means is that God foreloved us. He chose you and I before he created the world. That you're an exile, but you're an elect exile. As God was establishing the universe, it's not wrong to say this. He had you and I in mind. And he had us in mind, not just in a, in a general sense, but in a saving, electing, choosing sense, the God of the universe chose you. So as you're in exile, no, you're an elect exile, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. If you feel out of place in this world, lacking in The skill, the beauty, the expertise, the worth, the status. Feeling like you don't fit. Well, if you're in Christ, you fit. Because before you were even made, before anything in your life ever happened, God chose you. God chose you. Not just us, but you. Not just the person next to you, but you. God chose you. And he wants you to believe it this morning. He wants you to know it. He wants you to embed it into the depth of your reality. Chosen, elect. As Jared Mellinger says, we are chosen but not home. Secondly, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So we're chosen, we're elect by God in the sanctification of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, usually when we use that word sanctification, we think of um, it, it means to be made holy. So we're thinking progressively, we're getting more and more like Christ. But here, Peter's using it in that positional sense, that at when we were chosen by God and put our faith in Him, we are set apart as a holy thing. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We receive the Spirit, we are made holy. Isn't that wonderful news? We are separated from the world. We are actually holy. We may not always live out that holy status. I know I don't. So many times this week I've sinned and fallen short. But the beautiful reality of the gospel is that you are sanctified. You are set apart as holy when you put your faith in Christ. Why? Well, how? Well, the next thing. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter there is speaking of our conversion. So one way of talking about a conversion is obedience. Jesus said, repent and believe. When you repented and believed, you obeyed Jesus Christ and you were sprinkled with his blood and in that moment, washed clean of all your sin forever. And upon that moment of obedience, you're set apart for a life of obedience. And that's what much of this letter is about, pursuing obedience and holiness to Jesus Christ. So we're not just exiles, we're elect exiles, chosen before time, set apart as holy. We've come out of this world and now we've made allegiance to Jesus Christ. We've been sprinkled with his blood, holy forever, clean. But did you notice there were three things there to add to that? God the Father, God the Spirit and God the Son. The Trinity is there in seed form where exiles are in relationship with the triune God, which means we are never, ever alone. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is involved in your salvation and our salvation. So, how does this book function to serve us? Well, I believe it gives us an identity to enable us to navigate this journey on our way home. We're exiles, and knowing who we are and where we are and where we are going will enable us to avoid the errors that C.S. Lewis identified. Remember those longings, that desire that we have for true home, for true rest, for a place where we are loved and accepted and cared for, where we can be truly ourselves, where there is no discord, no breakdown, no division, no divorce, no pain, no sin, none of that anymore, that longing? Well, the, the, the identity of exile helps us to hold on to that longing, knowing that we don't need to fall into the first error, searching everywhere here on earth to try and fill the void that is left as we're exiles. Peter talks about it later in the letter. He says in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 17. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as exiles, set your hope on heaven. And what do we do now? Well, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, You also be holy in all your conduct. So don't fall into the trap that Lewis identified of running to a new person, a new relationship, a new thing, a new sin to try and fill the void of home. Instead, keep your longing for heaven and remain obedient now. And and that identity of exile can help you be like, oh, yeah, the reason why I wanna sin right now is I'm not home yet. The reason why I'm looking somewhere else for something that I can only get in Christ, I'm not home yet. I'm an exile. I'm going to conform myself to Christ, not to the passions of my flesh. The identity of exile helps us to avoid the the more Eastern error, giving up on our hope of home, suppressing and repressing that desire, being like, oh, this world is just suffering. It'll never be good. We begin to lose hope. Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So don't suppress your desires, but instead, rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So when the suffering and the pain and the hostility of life comes at you, rather than just giving up on hope, giving up on joy, giving up on the peace that you can have, his commendation is to rejoice knowing that all that suffering is a part of preparing you for the day when you finally get home. And when his glory is revealed, it will taste all the sweeter. So don't go searching. Don't suppress the desire. Instead, embrace hope. Tattoo heaven on your exile hearts and never give up on our glorious future to return where lewis began if i find myself in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that i was made for another world i must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which i shall not find till after death i must never let it get snowed under or turned aside I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Isn't that a wonderful way of thinking about it? Friends, we're exiles. Pressing on to that future country, pressing on to that glorious hope. Without knowing who we are and where we're going, we're going to constantly get our lives mixed up out of sorts our expectations will be out of kilter we'll be constantly surprised perplexed and pained we'll be tossed to and fro by the waves of life the winds of doubt and the darts of the enemy our hope for our true home will be snowed under that's why we need to know that we are exiles Because an exile knows that he is not home. An exile knows that however comfortable she is in a temporary place, it is not truly home. And an exile can bear with the pains and shocks and dislocations of our displacement if and only if they maintain their sense of hope. Hope that one day, somehow, they will find their way back home. And when they get there, home will be all that they truly desired. I want to end by reading one of the central verses of 1 Peter that explains how we're going to get there, our only hope. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. The only way we're going to get home is by the blood of Christ and by the work of him in our lives. And so brothers and sisters, fellow exiles, let's journey together living for Christ in a hostile world. Let me pray and we'll stand to sing. Almighty God, I thank you so much that you've given us this letter. You've given us this identity. Help us to avoid those twin errors, so often we go chasing for things of this world to fill the longing that only heaven can fill. Or in despondency, we give up on the hope. Instead, O Lord, would you fill us with a vision of the glory of our true home, the glory of that day when we finally will see you face to face and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory that will never end. Lord, would you keep us safe in Jesus Christ's name and help us to run the journey all the way home. Amen.